proverb that says, better is the end of a thing than the beginning. But I am, I am somewhat sad. There's only one more sermon after this I'm going to preach from the Psalms this time through, right? And um, it's been a blessed journey. I've learned a lot. I hope that you have too. hope the Lord has ministered to you. There are a couple resources as we're drawing towards the end here that I want to point your attention to for your continued personal study of the Psalms. They, I, I, there's many resources that have, have been helpful to me, but these ones have aided me, and they've been a few of my conversation partners through the sermons I've preached over these last few years. So I want to give you a timeless resource, a scholarly resource, a cookies-on-the-bottom-shelf introductory resource, and... Finally, a fun resource for the psalm. So my timeless resource is Spurgeon's Treasury of David. Treasuries of David, it's free all over the internet. But I like the formatting that gracegems.com or .org does. Uh, scholarly resource, Pastor Jim Hamilton over at Kenwood Baptist in Louisville is an especially gifted linguist who pastors at Kenwood. He preached through the psalms, and then that series, he preached through them sequentially, verse by verse, psalm by psalm. And that became the basis for his commentary. The sermons are free. The commentary is not, but you can find them on Thrift Books and Amazon. That's the scholarly resource. The Cookies on the Bottom Shelf introductory resource, uh, a man by the name, a scholar by the name Derek Kidner, in Tyndale's Old Testament commentary. It's, it's, um, it's pretty good, pretty good stuff. There's two volumes. It's worth the money if you're looking for a good commentary. That'll just get you started. And, and finally, for fun... If I had enough time, I would love to go, i like to go listen to uh, Pastor Alistair Begg bring the Psalms alive in that Scottish accent of his at truthforlife.org. So Spurgeon's Treasury of David, Jim Hamilton's Sermons and Commentary, Derek Kidner's Commentary, and finally, um, Alistair Begg. This is the last of the Psalms of David. This is the last psalm that we attribute to his authorship, to his pen. It's an acrostic psalm, like seven others we find in the Psalter. Each of its stanza begins with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Five of those acrostic psalms in the Psalter are David's. This was a favorite poetic device of David to just basically say, like, A is for, B is for, right? And each line starts off, of course, it's not A and B, it's the Hebrew alphabet, the five previous psalms just prior to Psalm 145 were prayers in which the author lifted up urgent supplications to the Lord in times of trouble. And then the five psalms that follow this psalm are praises. Aptly, this psalm is titled, Praise the Lord, or Great is the Lord, a song of praise of David. And interestingly enough, there's a lot of psalms that hearken us to praise the Lord, but this is the only psalm by which the subtitle, the word praise, exists in it. So a song of praise of David, this is unique. That's a unique subtitle to this psalm. And you may notice in your English translation, if you have an ESV Bible, and you look down just right above verse 14, so the end of verse 13, you'll see the words either in italics or in brackets, and that's because in the standard version of the Hebrew Bible, that verse is missing, that portion is missing. But in the documents that we found at Qumran in the middle of the 20th century and in the oldest translations of the Hebrew Bible, like the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, this verse appeared. 
and it supplies one missing letter from the acrostic. If you follow the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, the nun, or I guess would be most, most uh, closely related to N in our alphabet, is missing from this psalm. But when we found those documents at Qumran, and when we look back at the Septuagint, the Hebrew Bible, the Greek Hebrew Bible, this verse is there. And so it's put into brackets or italics in order to alert you to the fact that there are some manuscripts that don't have the verse. But of course, its content is completely scriptural and can be supplied from other places. Okay? Verses like this, when this shows up in your Bible like that, that shouldn't shake, shouldn't shake your confidence in the Word of God. You hold a good, accurate English translation in your hands now. And it is reliable. So let's read this psalm, 21 verses. Song of praise of David, great is the Lord. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. If you are a note taker or you like to highlight your Bible up, verse 3 is the highlight there because that's really the thesis. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. And shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all His works and, in, and kind in all His works. The Lord up, upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. The Lord is near to, him who call, near to all who call on Him and to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him, and He also hears the cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. May God add blessing to the reading of His Word, and may it build up the listeners. Amen? Amen. So David praises God. It's the psalm of praise of David, and this really has five sections. The first two go together, and then the last three go together. Verses one through three, God is worthy of praise because He is great. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. The verses, verses four through seven are calling the next generation to praise. And then there are three verses in a hymn, so to speak. They, this is the hymn that he wants the next generation to sing with him. Three points, 8 to 10, praise God for his goodness. 11 through 13, praise God because he reigns. And then finally, 14 through 21, praise God for his saving mercy. 
So let's take off. Verses 1 through 3. In verses 1 through 3, David shows that praise requires great thoughts of God, and great thoughts of God fuel praise. He begins it this way, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. That vision of God's greatness leads David to say that he is to be greatly praised. Great is the Lord and greatly he is therefore. You could almost, uh, you could almost insert these words there. Notice his logic. Great is the Lord and therefore he is to be praised greatly, loudly, with strength and power and singing. That means our praise is tied to what our view of God is. If we believe that God is great, it moves us to great praise. But if our hearts have low views of Him, if we lack appreciation of His greatness, it will lead us to lack of praise and worship. Or if we do praise and worship, hollow or mealy-mouthed or weak, quiet praise. You will not greatly praise the Lord if you don't think He's great, right? A great theology of God leads David to doxology. So great theology leads to great doxology. Doxology meaning the study of God's glory. Doxa, worship, understanding the greatness of God, to praise God. And his doxology flows from this high theology that David has. Now, he's spent lots of psalms establishing over and over and over again. We have well chronicled that David thought God was great. And there's many, 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 many reasons that David thought God was great. And so he's telling, he's almost introducing himself and he's like, I'm David, you know that I think God is great. I arise, his mercies are made new each morning. I arise each morning. And he's he's almost prefacing a little bit about what he's about to do. So that's kind of, it's sort of a call to worship. But then he gets really specific about the group of people that he wants to join in this song of greatness with. And he's convincing, he's seeking to convince this group of people, this specific group of people, that God is great and therefore they should praise him greatly. This group of people is the next generation. The next generation Something that's it's it's an interesting setting apart of this psalm from other psalms that are asking people to worship God for his greatness. Many times, as I've exposited the psalms, David would call his audience to worship, right? And then take off into the attributes of why that God why his God is worthy of being worshipped. Or he'll recount a deed of God. And they sing this hymn together, remembering the things of God and the acts of God and so forth. But this time, he's really specifically honing in on the next generation. Look at verses 4 through 7. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate." They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, they as in the next generation, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant abundant goodness and shall sing along of your righteousness. It's almost like what King David is doing here, what I do on 
Palm Sunday morning when we're singing the Hosanna song 17 million times, and I say, now the ladies, and all the ladies sing, and I say, now all the guys, and all the guys sing, and I say, now everybody, or just kids, or whatever. David is tuning them up and saying, next generation, sing this song with me. Sing this song of greatness with me. I'm going to sing. You repeat and sing it back to me. I'm going to say one attribute. You're going to say another attribute back to me. And the verses of that song that he wants them to sing with him are the remainder of this psalm. Okay, there's three of them, as I understood, as I broke it down. He is highlighting something significant. He knows this truth. I'm not going to be around forever, and those who come after me need to know what I know, that God is great and greatly to be praised. He is hearkening the next generation to join him in this life song of God's greatness. Now, if you knew... This is almost, it's, it's not, I don't know that I would go so far as to say this is a deathbed conversation between David and the next generation, but he knows he's got a limit. He's, what song would you have them to sing if you want them to know that God is great? What verses, what would the lyrics say to the song that you want to implant in their heart to get them on track with King David, with David? That's, that's really what has to be asked. And I mean, you, as you think about this, think, if you have kids especially or grandkids, what would you say to them? How would you express to them if you wanted them to think your God was great, that their God was great? This is the mindset of David. David could not have conceived. He was just thinking about the next generation after him. David could not have conceived that his words to hundreds of millions in the generations to come would join up in this song of God's greatness and response, where David sings praise to God and meditates on the splendor of His majesty, and then they speak back to Him awesome deeds, especially in light of the gospel. Now, I, I think David, was he, you, you see this in the Psalms, he already understands that someone within his line will be seated on the throne forever, but it's, he's seeing dimly. What we now see clear about Jesus and the gospel, he an, was anticipating it and believed that it was going to come to pass, but he had no clue, no clue, the full manifestation of this. The Lord has given us a new song about redemption that we have in Jesus Christ to sing. It is the biblical duty of every generation of Christians to do as David did, to see to it that the next generation hears about the mighty acts of God. God does not drop a new Bible from heaven on every generation. He intends that the older generation will teach the newer generation to read and think and trust and obey and rejoice, which is why we put such a hard serious-minded emphasis on family worship, on parents taking the time to train their children, present their children teleos, complete, before the Lord. Not only does it speak of imparting of truth from one generation to another, though. We're not just information transfer. Teachers and parents who do not exalt over God in their teaching will not bring about exaltation in God. 
dry, unemotional, indifferent teaching about God, whether at home or at church, is half-truth at best. It says one thing about God, yet portrays a completely different thing. It's inconsistent. It says that God is great, but it does not teach as if he is great. If we want our children to exalt in the Lord, if we want the next generation to exalt in the Lord, we must not only teach that God is great, we must believe it in such a way that he is great and live it and worship him in such a way that as if God is great and greatly to be praised. Information transfer is not your obligation. Information helps. Theology helps. They definitely have to have the facts right. But they have to have the doxology part of it too. I I want the words of the hymns to be correct that we sing around our table. I want them to be correct. That's why we teach the hymns that we teach. But I also want, to, want your children to see you singing those words with reckless abandonment. Believing the words that you're singing. Embracing the words that you're singing. Being edified by the words that you are singing. I'm... I, I'm almost sure that if I asked you, tell me a story of a person in your life who who inspired you in the faith. I'm almost certain, of course, that person, they may not have had all the facts right all the time, but maybe it was your grandpa who took you in, and when you came down the steps in the morning... He was at the table with his Bible. Or maybe, maybe it was a, a, a Sunday school teacher. But bless her heart, she didn't, she didn't uh, get all the facts right all the time, but when you came upstairs and you went to worship to sing, she sang really off-key, but man, she really sang to the Lord because she really believed it. Right? It takes both. We want to be both. We want to be theologically correct, and we want to be doxologically enthusiastic about what's going on. Our children, the next generation, get excited and get pumped up about the things that we get excited and pumped up about. I got proof for you. Ready? I'm going to get a dig in on some of you guys. You ever met a Cubs fan that likes them because they're good? No. They're not good. There's a lot of teams out there that are not good, but most of the time you ask somebody, it's like a diehard fan of a sports team that's not good, and you're like, man, why do you like that? What do they say? Well, my dad liked them. It's what we did together. Our children's ministry is titled teleos, which is the Greek word for complete. I said that earlier. We want to present our children as complete or teleos before the Lord as he gifts us to do. We start that time of teleos at 9 a.m. 
In the Family Life Center, we sing a hymn. We introduce the kids to what we're going to be learning and the families to what we're going to be learning that day. And Pastor Matt has a little acronym that he reviews to remind us of the importance of family worship. And it's T-E-L-L, T-E-L-L, like tell. And the E of it, it's time, excitement, loving, and learning. And the E of it is the one that I want to emphasize. Our kids get excited and have energy for what we get excited about and have energy for. If you want people, especially young people, to praise God, don't just tell the story. Love to tell the story of Jesus and his glory. Love to tell the story of Jesus and his glory. And David loves to tell the story. He chooses three attributes. He's about to give them pearls here. Three attributes of God to highlight God's greatness to the next generation in an effort to get them to praise. The three verses are, praise God because he's good, his goodness, praise God because he reigns, and praise God for his saving mercy. Verses 8 through 10, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. Recognize with me that the words that David speaks here in Psalm 145 in praise of God's compassion come almost verbatim out of Exodus chapter 34. I'm going to read 6 through 9 if you just want to follow along. Listen, listen for the echo here. The Lord passed before him, him being Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity on the fathers and on children and on children's children to the third and fourth generations. And Moses bowed his head towards the earth and did what? Worship. He got all the theology he needed right there, right? And then what resulted? Doxology, worship. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Moses, just to jog your memory, Moses asked God earlier in this chapter to reveal, Lord, I just want to see you. Can I just see you? If, if I could just get a glimpse of you, it would really help me. I just want to see you. And the Lord says, I'll, I'll let you see me, but you, you, won't, you can't handle seeing me full on, so you'll get to see my back. The Lord passes in front of Moses, and he shows him only his back, and he says to him verbatim these words, as he passes by, I am God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding steadfast love. I am good to all, and mercy is over all that I have made. Moses earlier asked God what his name was, and he just told him, I am. This is an expansion upon that I am. I am. I am what? Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is God. Almost verbatim, David is quoting that great scene from Moses. Why? Because David knows what happened to Moses when he was confronted with the very name, the true nature, the true theology, pure essence of God. What did Moses do? He bowed down and he worshiped. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He praises the Lord who is great to be praised. And what's more is that David hadn't yet even seen the fullest manifestation of God's goodness come to pass. 
we, we have, and it's called the gospel. Young people in the room, stop your coloring, stop your shifting, and listen. Listen to me. Hearken your ears. Hear me today. If not for a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, this ragtag group of sinners sitting around you called Mount Vernon Baptist Church, this church family that loves you so much, without it, if not for God, this God, sending his only son to die on a cross for our sins, and by no merit of our own snatching us out of the fire, we would be hopelessly hopelessly, desperately lost. Do you understand that, babies? Your parents are wildly, wildly imperfect. Sinners. We are sinners. But for the grace of God, but for this God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, we would be lost and helpless. Great is our Lord, amen? amen, and greatly to be praised. Second verse of this hymn, this is what David started, now they're getting it, right? They're getting into it, they're singing it with him. Second verse, praise God because he reigns. Praise God because he reigns. Psalm 145, 11 through 13, they shall speak of your glory, the glory of your kingdom, tell of your power. To make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works and kind in all his works. This is praise to God. Praise God because he reigns. He has an everlasting kingdom. His kingdom will not end. It will go on forever and ever. Earthly kingdoms come and go. Kingdoms rise and fall. But God's kingdom still goes on. Even David's earthly kingdom would come to an end. But God's kingdom will never come to an end. And this moves David to praise. And again, he is moved to praise without even knowing that after having conquered death and accomplishing all the Father set out for him to do, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the seed of Jesse, sat down on his throne and the earth is his footstool. He reigns over all. And the only place in the entire universe that hasn't fully gotten the memo that Jesus reigns is within still sinful human hearts. It's the only place where there's any doubt whatsoever that God reigns over all things. And so we lift our praise to God and pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus, come, reign. Next generation, hear me. This is not a cleverly devised myth for the weak-minded. Jesus reigns whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not. Jesus sits on the throne of heaven, and one day he will return and physically rule over earth just as he rules in heaven. 
No more kings, no more presidents, no more congressmen, no more nothing. Jesus, that's it. Absolute reigning on earth like he does in heaven. This isn't a cute story. It's what's going to happen. This is our faith. I think this is most often neglected of these three truths that David is wanting the next generation to sing with him, I think this is the most oft-neglected truth. Because in the economy of God, it always looks like his people are losing until they most decidedly win. Right? Consider with me, think about Israel trapped by the Red Sea. Looked really bad until it didn't look really bad. Until they started singing on the other side. Or walking around Jericho. Look pretty foolish. Or David on the run from Saul or Absalom. Or Jesus on Silent Saturday. It always is darkest before dawn. It always looks bad before it doesn't look bad at all. The tendency for the church in the face of cultural headwinds is to look down at our shoes and sheepishly kick at the dirt. Poor little church of Jesus just ain't what she used to be. No. She is everything she has ever had been, and she's more, because the kingdom of God has come and is coming. Jesus sits on the throne. He reigns over all, and because he is a merciful, rescuing God, he is giving time for every human heart that will have him to get the memo. And we are his heralds, his his people, his church We're the ones ringing it out. If God is for us, who can be against us? Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. We will speak of His glory, of His kingdom. And then finally, the third verse of this hymn. Praise the Lord for His saving mercy. For his saving mercy, 14 through 20. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and give, and you give them food, give them their food in due season. And makes me think about when Jesus is preaching. It says, consider the sparrow that neither sows nor reap, yet it has everything it needs. Consider the lily. 16, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him and all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him, and he also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Martin Luther, the reformer, said about these verses, Christ is the king of the poor, afflicted, and fallen. Christ is the king of the poor, afflicted, and fallen. The forms of these verbs, the verbs in verse 14, upholds and raises up, are an ongoing action verb. It's not upheld and raised up, it's upholds and raises up. 
ongoing. And Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon actually said, when he rendered these out, he rendered them out, the Lord is Jehovah upholding. The Lord is Jehovah raising up. Every one of us is dependent upon Christ, God, for provision. Amen? I mean, it's a really, it's, we say that a lot. But we're all dependent upon God for provision. You have your job because, not because you're really good at what you do or because you knew the right people. God provides for you because He has willed His provision for you. He opened His hand to you. It is He that opens His hand and closes it. Hear me, next generation this morning. Hear me, all generations this morning. Do not, do not go against the Lord. Do not violate your conscience. Do not violate your Christian convictions for a paycheck. Do not do it. Make sure your conscience is scripturally informed, of course, and make sure that you're not being bullheaded and acting bullish and taking a stand on something that's not scriptural. But when it is, and you are convicted and convinced from the truth of God's word, stand your ground and fear not. Fear not. Jesus alone is the Lord of your conscience. And luckily for you, he's also the one alone who opens his hand of blessing, opens his hand of provision to you. It's a very good thing. Great is thy faithfulness. I was struck by that song. I was thinking about this point as we sang that. Great is thy faithfulness. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Not only materially does he provide, but man, verse 18 and 19 sounds a whole lot like Romans 10, 13. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears the cry and saves them. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 13. Consider with me the rescuing God in the case of Noah. Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, the first Joseph, Moses, Joshua, the Israelites as a whole, David, Nehemiah, Mary and Joseph too, baby Jesus as they fled, Peter, who denied him three times. The first century church who was their bodies used to light the garden parties of Emperor Nero. Who, who kings and great men sought to stamp out cold. Yet here we sit. Martin Luther and the reformers on the run. God is a redeemer. 
savor. Orphans who were rescued and evangelized by George Mueller. Here's one. How about the Hurani people who killed Jim Elliot? Killed him for sharing the gospel, seeking to share the gospel with him. And then what did God do amongst those people? Saved them, rescued them. And on and on and on and on and on. God rescues and rescues and saves and saves and saves. And how about you? How about you? That's the rescue that you're most familiar with, right? How about you? How about me? Consider now for a moment just how God has rescued you. Babies, next generation. Those big people you're sitting beside, God rescued them. Saved them. One of my favorite things to do is to teach membership class and listen to the testimonies of people who God has rescued and brought to Mount Vernon Baptist Church. It is, this last time especially, it's often filled with tears and laughter and joy and wonder. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. He is our rescuing God. Verse 21 says, let all flesh, let everything that has breath, let this generation and the next generation and a thousand generations from now praise the Lord. Let them praise the Lord. That's my prayer this morning. It really is. Just remember this. Because I think the best parenting or grandparenting or teaching advice, if you want to impact the next generation... If you want them to see that God is good the way that you feel that God is good, keep them in touch with how good he is, how he has and is reigning over us, and how he rescues those who look to him for mercy. Let's pray.